Well, please go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 7. The seventh psalm is where we are today. And it's always a good time to remind you when we're in the Psalms that it's not Psalms 7 that you're turning to. It is Psalm singular, Psalm 7. It's not Psalm chapter 7. The book of Psalms doesn't have chapters. Each one is an individual psalm. So, you know, one of those really persnickety, detailed kind of things that uh, I appreciate whenever, you know, you mind the rules around here when it comes to English. So, Psalm 7 is where we are today. And of course, it is that time of year when we are reminded to be thankful, that we're encouraged to slow down and think about the reasons that we have to be grateful. How great would it be if our culture, our society did that more often? How great would it be if the church did that more often, if we made it a habit of slowing down and counting our blessings as that hymn encourages us to do? If we count our many blessings, if we name them one by one, we will certainly come to see what the Lord has done, won't we? When we slow down and consider all the reasons we have to be thankful. And we need to remember this morning that Christian thankfulness, not just general thankfulness, but Christian thankfulness is not based on our perceived circumstances. That is something we really, really need to get. We really need to understand. We don't have a thankfulness when it seems as though life is going well for us. We don't have a thankfulness whenever we're told to. We, as Christians, should have a continuing thankfulness that cuts through all the different circumstances you'll find yourself in in life. And you will find yourself in a variety of circumstances, won't you? And you'll have all sorts of reasons that your flesh will say, you don't need to be thankful. But as a Christian, as someone who has been redeemed by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work that Jesus performed on your behalf, you have a reason to be thankful eternally, don't you? And it begins now. It doesn't begin when you die and you go to heaven. It begins now. Every day is a day in which we can be thankful. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll look at Psalm 7. Father, again, we come to you just thankful for our salvation, that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins, and through His atoning work, we are made right with you once for all. We thank you that our Lord, our Savior, our God, Jesus Christ, that He rose from the dead and ascended on high, and that He gives good gifts to men. Lord, help us to be enriched in reminders from Your Word, that we'd be enriched by the truth, that we'd be strengthened by who You are, looking at Your divine justice and grace and where they meet at the cross. Lord, we ask together that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 7 is where we are, and I want to point your attention before we get to verse 1, the heading that you should have in your Bible. You know, uh, these headings are inspired too. That's something that perhaps you might not realize, or maybe you've forgotten. The headings to the Psalms, the introduction to the Psalms, those are in the original text. Those are inspired of God, and just because they don't have a verse number in front of them, that doesn't mean you can skip over them. You should certainly look at them not only for additional context, but as the Word of God itself. This is a psalm of David, as you see there. This is from David. 
And it's when he was slandered by this Benjamite named Cush. Cush is the name of the one who has slandered him, and we learned of that, that slandering action later on in the psalm. Now, we don't know who Cush the Benjamite is. Uh, we have, you know, some guesses as you read through David's life and what's recorded in Scripture. You have some guesses of who that might be referring to. Uh, perhaps it's someone that we never find out about in the narratives. We just simply don't know. We also don't know if this was taking place before David's reign as king or after, during David's reign as king. If it was before his reign, perhaps Cush the Benjamite was somebody who gossiped to King Saul about David and tried to put David down in the eyes of King Saul. If it was during his reign, perhaps Cush the Benjamite was somebody who was persuaded by David's son Absalom as Absalom ran a smear campaign against his own father, and we'll return to that in a little bit. But you'll, you'll notice in this heading that this is a Shigion. You see that word there? What a, what a strange word. This is a Shigion or Shigion of David. Well, that term is a reference to a wild song, a very, uh, an unpredictable rhythmic song that is stirred up from deep emotion. And this is the only psalm out of the 150 psalms that we have that classifies itself as a shigion. Now, there is a, one more place in Scripture you find this, interestingly, this type of song, a shigion, and that's in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3.1, what Habakkuk ends his prophecy on, the last chapter, is a shigion, a wild rhythmic song. And again, we don't know who this Cush fella was but he was slanderous toward David. If you look down in verses 3 to 4, you see that David is appealing to God saying, if I have done this, if there is this, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, etc. These are the charges that were laid against David. These are the accusations against David. And David is appealing to God and saying, if this slander is true, then bring about justice. But in David's perspective, as a man of integrity, he was saying these are slanderous accusations. And so Cush, Cush the Benjamite, he, he was running his mouth about David. And if there's anything that we know as human beings, it's that words hurt, don't they? The phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, words can never hurt me, that's just not true. And some of you, especially you men in the room, might feel a little weak admitting that words can hurt you. But I suggest that you follow David's lead here and own up to the reality that words can cut deep. Words can certainly hurt us. It's a very interesting thing. We, we were made in the image of God, male and female, made in the image of God. And one of the most fascinating aspects to being creatures made in His image, the only ones, not angels are made in the image of God, only human beings. One of, one of the real fascinating aspects of that is that we can communicate. God has given us this ability to communicate with one another. And James chapter 3 talks about this. We have these tongues that we can use. They're so small, but we can use for good or for evil. And he actually directly connects our tongues to being made in the image of God. He says, with our tongue, we bless men and we curse men made in the image of God. We have to be so careful with this communication that God has given us. And I assume I don't need to persuade you of this, 
especially in the age of instant communication in which we live, the age of comment sections online, instant responses and even reactions. You know how Facebook has that react feature and you can put something out there that you, you see as just being truthful and right and good and if a certain person comes along and puts angry face reaction to that, that would ruin some of your days, wouldn't it? That could just cut you to the soul that someone would disagree with you so strongly as to publicly respond in such a way. Our words and even our reactions have great impact. And I want you to go with me to the book of Proverbs. It's right after the book of Psalms. We are, of course, all the way in Psalm 7, so you have to turn quite a ways. But turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 9. I want to show you four Proverbs that talk about what we can do with our communication. Starting with Proverbs 11, verse 9. Listen to this. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. With, with someone's mouth, with a godless man's mouth, he can destroy another person. Now that's strong language, isn't it? You telling me words can't hurt you? With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. Proverbs 12, next chapter, verse 18. Proverbs 12, 18, it says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Someone who speaks rashly, usually in anger, usually from deep emotion, who's just flying off the cuff, a wild man, a wild woman, those words thrust, they pierce, they stab like a sword. And I love the contrast here. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, verse 4, just a page or two over. Proverbs 15, verse 4, it says, a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. A perverse tongue not only destroys, not only pierces, but crushes, and crushes the spirit, not something material. We know, of course, that someone can't speak perversions to you and cause your hand to wither, but someone can speak perversions to you and cause your soul to wither and can make you feel dried up and helpless inside. One more, next chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 27. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. A worthless man has words that are like fire. You know that fire doesn't give life. Fire spreads, consumes, destroys, ruins, tarnishes. That's what fire does. And the worthless man, with his words, something intangible, not something you can hold on to, not something you can contain, but with his words, with his communication, it's like a scorching fire. Well, in today's psalm, Psalm 7, David is feeling the effects of the words of a worthless and evil man. He is feeling destroyed. He is feeling pierced. He is feeling crushed. He is feeling burned by someone's words. And you could just imagine a scenario in David's life at this time. Someone could ask David, why do you even care? Cush the Benjamite. I mean, who? 
They, they could say, 3,000 years from now, no one's going to know who he is. And that's true, right? <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> why do you care about Cush's words? Well, let me tell you why David cared. Because he's human. He was human, just like you are human. And words hurt. Slander hurts. It can tear down because it's sinful. It's wicked. It's evil to go about lying about somebody, to try to harm their reputation, hurt their character. Sin hurts. And we have to accept, of course, that slander, it is just a reality of the fallen world we live in. Hurt and pain and turmoil, that's a reality of the fallen world we live in, and slander is an aspect of that. People will talk, won't they? You, some of you know this all too well. People will talk. And sadly, sometimes even Christians will slander other Christians. The Corinthians had a particular problem with that. We notice from Paul's letters to them. He was afraid that there would be slander among them when he would visit them. Well, it's also a reality that when people talk in a slanderous way, that some reputations will receive permanent damage too, won't they? When people slander, it has an effect. And like that big dent in the side of a car, you can work really, really hard to get it out and to make it look like it never happened. But there's probably, likely, always going to be some sort of evidence that that dent was made. And when people go about slandering other people and those reputations get dented, it will never be like it was before. And so David, in the midst of this slander... He is in utter despair. Look at Psalm 7, verse 2 with me. Look how real these threats were. He says to God, Save me, or He will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. These were real threats in David's life. These, these slanderous accusations were leading up to a real result where he was going to be taken out, abused, killed. The end game of the accusations was to do away with God's man. The man that God had chosen to be king in Israel, again, whether this is before his reign or during his reign, we just don't know. But the goal was to get him out of God's program. That's what Cush, the Benjamite, was seeking. Look at verses 3 and 4. O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. These are the accusations. He's going through the list. This is what he's heard that is being said about him. And instead of appealing to another human, he's appealing to God. Because God knows. These accusations of injustice doing evil, plundering without cause, being a malicious person, a selfish, wicked, evil person. He's taking them to God and saying, if I have done this, correct me. These accusations weren't rare in David's life. I mentioned earlier his son Absalom going on a smear campaign, and I want you to see that for yourself. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. Turn back to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 16 where David's son Absalom was convinced that he would be a better king than his father. And so he started waiting 
ground in the right places. He started catching people on their way and, and saying to them, oh, what's going on in your life that's so bad? And when they would tell him what's going on that's so bad, he would say, ah, the king should be taking care of that. I, I'm so sorry that you are, are living with the consequences of such a bad king. And Absalom would tell them, I, I would do better. I would do better. And this went on for years that Absalom would do this. Sounds like a politician, doesn't he? And over time, he gained quite a following. Over time, Absalom had people who believed in his cause and wanted to see him rule in Israel. And we're going to read about one of those people here in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, starting in verse 5. It says, When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David. Now remember, David is king. This is during his reign. He's throwing stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Words hurt, don't they? Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse. For the Lord has told him, Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. As he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. I imagine they did arrive weary after that. A man just following along the whole time, throwing stones, throwing dust, and perhaps most painfully throwing insults, lies, wickedness. You man of bloodshed, you're getting what you deserve. Your son is much better than you. How dare you claim this reign in Israel? You're no king. Can you, you can just hear this ringing in your ears, can't you? Over and over and over again, all the way as they're traveling. This mocking and slander. So yeah, they were torn up inside. They were weary. Well, what does that experience mean for you, Christian? I want to go ahead and start getting some application in here early. What does David's experience mean for you? Well, you should expect it, Christian. Do you remember the teaching of our Lord Jesus when He said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. 
That's a strong warning from Jesus. Woe to you. The same phrase he used to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Well, he tells the crowds, woe to you when all men speak well of you. We see in the book of Acts, over and over and over again, the Christians are slandered. They're being wrongfully arrested and accused. You should expect it, Christian. You are to expect slander in your life because of your association with Jesus Christ, the King of kings. Just as David's men were associated with him and they got dust in their eyes and they came all bruised because of the rocks thrown at them, how much more should you expect it because you are traveling along with King Jesus, whom the world hates? So we are to live with integrity as Christians, trusting the Lord every step of the way. We trust in God's perfect judgment, relying on the integrity that He's wrought in us. And as we go back to Psalm 7, we see that David's greatest desire was for this vindication. Look at verse 5 with me. He tells God, if I've done these things, if the slanders are true, verse 5, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. David's desire was for vindication through honest and thorough judgment. David was not a devil as Cush the Benjamite had said, so he appeals to the one who is able to help. He appeals to Yahweh, the Lord his God. And he appeals for justice regardless of the personal consequences. You see this in verse 5? He's not asking for partiality. Perhaps some of you have kind of asked for justice that way. <laughs> when you say, oh Lord, your, your justice be done, but can you pass over what I've done? <laughs> He's not asking for that here, is he? He's crying out to God and he's saying, if I have done this, serve me justice. Well, David knows there's been no evil intent on his part. And he has confidence in his integrity as a man of God. And let's take a point from this. When you have a clear conscience, you can call out to God for justice freely. When you have a clear conscience, you can call out to God like this and ask for vindication. You can plead for justice without reservation. It's an important point. Well, we see in the rest of the psalm, ultimate justice, beginning with the vengeance of God. Verses 6 to 16, so the, the bulk of the rest of the psalm, is about the vengeance of God. This vengeance is possessed by God, it's deserved by David's enemies, and I want to read it as a chunk so we can see how David describes God's holy vengeance. Verse 6, it says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. 
and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. Wow, what a statement. David calls upon God to act in justice. This should remind us of a New Testament verse that's actually quoting the Old Testament. Romans 12, Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This commentary that Paul gives that we are to leave room for the wrath of God is very, very important. We do not go out trying to make all things right on our own, but instead we appeal to the one who is able to do that and who has promised to do that. We leave room for the wrath of God, and David is showing us that here. He's appealing to God. He's not taking matters into his own hands. Even that, that man, Shimei, back in 2 Samuel 16, the man who, who was going along and cursing David, David's man says, I'll go cut his head off. And David says, Let's let the Lord figure this one out. Let's let the Lord work it out. Vengeance belongs to God, and that's what David is showing us in this psalm. And we're given a massive picture of God's judgment here, aren't we? If you start again with me in verse 6, we notice that God judges in His anger. It might surprise you to see this in your Bible. Uh, There's a verse that we just read that says, God has anger or indignation every day. Maybe you've never thought about God that way. Maybe that's never entered your head that God would be angry at all. Well, God is angry, and He has a perfect anger. And perhaps we we don't like to think of God being angry because we don't know anything about perfect anger, do we? (laughs) Maybe just a little bit. But so much of our anger is imperfect. That's why James says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Our anger is so often imperfect. Even, even at times when we, we recognize that something is wrong and on the basis of truth we are stirred to anger, we're not all the way to perfect anger yet. Just this week, maybe some of you saw, I shared it on Facebook, there was a beauty pageant in New Hampshire for young women that was won by a young man, a man who looked like he should be playing left tackle for the local high school football team was squeezed into a dress and given flowers. And you have all these dainty young women standing around as losers. And the winner is a man. Now, I'm not trying to defend beauty pageants here, but on the basis of what is reasonable and right and true, after we initially laugh at the parody of itself that this movement has become, we should have some anger. We should be angry that this is not only happening, but it's being endorsed, it's being encouraged, that, that the basic tenets of truth in our world are just being ignored and twisted. But as we think about God's anger towards such things, don't we know that His anger goes farther? 
And that repulsion that we have at something that's so obviously wrong is the same repulsion that God has against every sin and thought, word, and deed. God is so holy, God is so righteous, that 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 kind of disgust that we have at something that is just so blatantly wrong, God has that kind of perfect anger toward every one of our sins because He is holy and just and good. And when we read verses like verse 6 that say God is going to arise in His anger and arouse Himself for judgment, or verse 11, that He has indignation every day, we have to recognize that this is all rooted in His righteousness because He is holy, because He is comprehensively perfect. He has to have anger towards sin. God's righteousness leads to perfect justice. And that is a great comfort for those of us who have been forgiven. For those of us who know that our sins will not be on our account in the day of judgment, but that all of our sins were placed on Jesus Christ and we're forgiven. Doesn't His justice come to us as a a doctrine of comfort? But for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, for those who are still in their sins, God's holiness should be the most frightening doctrine that there is. Because His holiness, His righteousness doesn't just exist in a vacuum. It has consequences. A perfect judgment awaits those who are in their sins. And because His holiness is a fire, His holiness is going to consume. His holiness is going to destroy the wicked. One of these days, He will make all things right. He will set all things straight. Not one stone will be left unturned in the anger of God when He judges. And there's a sovereign appointment for this. You see that at the end of verse 6. You have appointed judgment. And in verse 7, the assembly of the peoples is going to encompass God. This is an appointed time over all the people of the earth when God will judge. All will be assembled, and all will be exposed in His judgment. Look with me again at verse 9, the last part of verse 9. This judgment in this sovereign appointment is when the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. This is a total judgment. We know that we can only judge what's on the outside, and that's what makes so many of our decisions difficult in life. We have a very hard time the right call in certain situations when we're working with other people because we don't know their hearts. We don't know their motivation. We don't know the difference between an honest mistake and malicious intent. We just don't know the difference sometimes. But on the day of judgment, God knows the difference. On the day of judgment, there is no doubt about what is going on in people's hearts and minds. Let me remind you of one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. As Christians, we are encouraged, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. At the final judgment, in the final analysis... The invisible motives of men 
will be brought to bear on the judgment. Not just the outward fruits of someone's life, but the motivations of the heart. And so once again, God's righteousness should be the worst news for those who are in their sins. The gospel for those who are in their sins is not the holiness of God. That's bad news. The holiness of God is bad news to those who are in their sin. As Paul preached at Mars Hill, this is from Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul was preaching to a group of Gentile unbelievers, and look at what he says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The word goes out to an unbelieving world, turn or burn. And I know that's sometimes just like this pithy statement that Baptists use, and we don't want to use it. (laughs) But how true is it? What does repent mean? It means to turn. All men everywhere are to turn, or they will be consumed by the holy fire of God. All men are subjected to this judgment. The day has been set. It's been set through a man he's raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. It will happen, and there will be a perfect judgment. And so in our psalm today, we also see certainty. A final reconciliation will be made resulting in the destruction of the wicked if they do not repent. Look again at verse 12 with me. There's a big if at the start. If a man does not repent, then these things will happen to him. It's an ultimate judgment that's going to come upon the people. Certain calamity awaits them. If a man does not repent, verse 12, God is going to sharpen his sword God has already bent His bow and He's made it ready. God's prepared for Himself deadly weapons and He's made His arrows fiery shafts. Certain calamity awaits the wicked. In the New Testament, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what this is about. This is what it looks like to fall into the hands of the living God, that He has His weapons aimed at you, sinner. Notice that this is specific. This is not a general anger. What man bends his bow and points his arrow generally? No one does that. Who sharpens his sword for no reason? But all of these warlike images are to communicate to us that the sinner is in immediate danger of the just, perfect, absolute, comprehensive judgment of God. The one who is in his sins, the one who has not repented, the one who has, who has put up his hand to God and said, I don't want to hear it, I don't need you. He is in immediate danger every step, every breath, every moment of every day. God has objects of His wrath. Charles Spurgeon communicated this in a way that only guys like Spurgeon can. He wrote about God, He is angry today and every day with you, ye ungodly 
and impenitent sinners. The best day that ever dawns on a sinner brings a curse with it. Sinners may have many feast days, but no safe days. Because the wrath of God abides on the unbelieving. The condemnation of God is already at work among the sinners. Certain destruction awaits them. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me again. Certain destruction. These men who have dug a pit for malicious reasons, they're trying to trap someone else. They've dug a pit and they've hollowed it out, but they're going to fall into the hole which they made. His own mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. That word pate just means the crown of the head. It's the same thing. It's head. This is what's going to happen to the wicked, particularly those who are persecuting God's people. Those who are going after God's people will suffer calamity themselves. Like a boomerang that goes out, their violence is going to return to them. And I couldn't help but remember when I was thinking through this psalm, just a few years ago, right here in Payson, do you remember that there was a man who flew a plane into his own house? A man who was presumably trying to kill those who were inside, a woman and her son. And the plane went in, and they walked out without much of a scratch, and he died. What a vivid picture, a real illustration of what we're reading here, that his mischief will return upon his own head. God will work justice one way or another, and ultimately all accounts will be settled. Some of you are numbers people, some of you do accounting, you know what it means to reconcile accounts. Others who are like me have no idea what that means. <laughs> we, we just hope that someone else will do it for us. But one of these days, all accounts with God will be reconciled. And if you are someone who belongs to Him by faith, that is a great hope that all injustices in this world will be taken care of. But if you're a sinner, if you're someone who has rejected God, that should be absolutely terrifying. That one of these days, God is going to give you what you deserve. Well, David, he set his hope on vindication, and we should too. We see that in verse 8 again, where he calls out, Vindicate me, O Lord. But we also see it all the way back at the beginning in verse 1. Notice that David says, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. His refuge is already taken. David is not saying, one of these days or at the end, I will take refuge in you. He is saying right now, even in the midst of slander, I have taken refuge in you. No matter what is happening around us, we can say with David that God is our refuge. No matter what is going on in our lives, no matter who's hurting us with their words, no matter what kind of relationship is committing treason, we can say with God, you, or with, with David to God, you are my refuge. And so consequently, God's people don't fear a day of judgment, but we long for the day He arises. We can say with David, arise, O Lord. Look at verse 10 with me. We can say with David, my, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is the one who saves those who are upright in their heart. Verse 8, those who have integrity, those who have righteousness, those are the ones who are saved. 
Now, we want to notice first that people are condemned or saved by what's in their hearts, by their righteousness or lack thereof it, by their good heart or by their bad heart, because the heart is the root of action, isn't it? Remember when Jesus was talking about this in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, don't lust or don't, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. The heart is the root. And so the judgment of God will be by the heart. In Luke chapter 6, verses 43 and 45, we have recorded for us Jesus' teaching, which says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar brush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. It all happens in your heart first. Anything that comes out of your mouth, anything that you do with your hands, it all happens first in the heart. That's the root of action. So how could we, Christians, long for a day of God's judgment if that's the case? Do we have a perfect heart? If anybody does, I'll gladly give up my position at the pulpit. (laughs) I need to submit to you, whoever you are. None of us possesses a perfect heart. So what are we that we can long for a day of judgment, that we can say with, with David to God, arise and judge? Well, we are blessed. Later on in the Psalms, at Psalm 32, David writes, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It doesn't say, blessed is the man who doesn't sin. That ship has sailed, all right? That that horse is way out of the barn, isn't it? It doesn't say, blessed is the man who has avoided sin very carefully his whole life. Very blessed. It says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute that sin. He doesn't account that sin. And in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 4, Paul picks up that verse and he gives us some more commentary. And he he tells us that in Jesus Christ, we can have our sins forgiven in such a way that God does not account those to us. God does not reckon those on our account. He's not going to, to bring those into the judgment we deserve, but instead, because of what Jesus has done, all of that judgment has fallen on Jesus. There's a substitutionary nature to the cross. That's what we deserved to be. But instead, Jesus was there in our stead, bearing the wrath that we deserve. And so through Jesus' work, by faith in the finished work of Christ, you know what God will say to you? You are blessed. And you are righteous. Not only... Does He wipe our sins away? Our sins are not imputed to us. But then we get the righteousness of God imputed to our account. The very righteousness of God is placed on our account. Just as our sins are removed, God's righteousness is placed on. And in that situation, how could we be anything but blessed? How could we not long for a day of righteous judgment? When we know that in Christ we have a refuge, in Christ we are secure, in Christ we're shielded from the wrath that we deserve because He took it for us. 
He is a covering. The New Testament word is propitiation. He's a covering for us in that He shields us from the wrath of God and He cloaks us in His righteousness. And for all eternity, we are protected by Him. And this, of course, in our lives started with repentance, didn't it? Again, look at our psalm today, verse 12. It all hinges on repentance. If a man does not repent, he will receive the wrath he deserves. But if a man does repent, what's the inverse of that? If a man does repent, he's protected by God. He's not hunted down by God. He's not the object of God's wrath. But instead, he's in God's family forever. He's secure. He's protected. And we know this as Christians. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been reborn. We've been given a new nature. We've been given new desires. And we're now represented by the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. And that there is nothing that anyone can say or do that would bring back the wrath we deserve. Because in Jesus, what did he say on the cross? It is finished. In Jesus, it is finished. And here's the Christian hope articulated in Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Cush the Benjamite? He can't. Whoever's in your life running their mouth, can they bring a charge against you, God's elect? No. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You can't get any more secure than that. You cannot be any more eternally protected than that. So we join with David on the last verse of this psalm, verse 17. We join with David and we say, I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. We, of all the people in the earth, have reason to sing praises to God, don't we? Even amid slander and accusations, broken relationships, wickedness and evil done to us that wasn't deserved, malicious intent on the parts of others that we can't even discern because we're so limited. Amid all of that confusion and pain and turmoil, we can still, verse 17, praise God. We can sing praises to His name. No matter what is going on in your life, Christian, praise is befitting today. Singing songs of praise and worship is befitting always. Believers belong to God now and always by His grace. And so we're thankful for grace and we're hopeful for justice, aren't we? Looking forward to a day when God sets all things straight. And we see grace and justice meet at the cross. God doesn't forgive our sins by just forgetting about them with no action. But He took on flesh and died in our place for our sins, that we may be forgiven. Through His act of justice, we are forgiven. Our sins weren't just 
forgotten without being taken care of. They were taken care of at the cross. Our sins were put on our Savior, Jesus Christ, and were forgiven through His action of dying for us. So we see justice there, and we see grace, because through what Jesus has done, not only are we forgiven, but we're given so much more than we deserve. Eternal life, joy, peace, security, forever and ever because of what Jesus has done. There was a double imputation. Jesus was imputed with our sin, and we are imputed with the righteousness of God through Him. 